Hello lovelies, my name is Caitlin and welcome to another episode of True Crime with Caitlin. Today we're going to be talking about a man who two days before Christmas left the house to go to work and never returned home and over 30 years later his family are still waiting, desperate for answers. This is the unsolved murder of Paul Logan. In December 1993, the small, quaint town of Consett, County Durham looked like something out of a Christmas movie. Fluffy white snow covered the vast fields and the streets, homes were decorated with twinkly festive lights and within the Logan home there was a sense of joy and excitement. Paul Logan and Pamela Hughes lived with their two children, four-year-old Michael and baby Natalie who was nine months old. Paul was 25 and he and Pamela were childhood sweethearts. They'd been going out for about a decade and were in a very happy, loving relationship. Loving would be a word often used to describe Paul. He radiated love and adoration to his family and he got it back in return. He was a treasured son to Hugh and Elsie and he was an excellent devoted father. This is Pamela describing Paul with their son Michael. He always seemed to be laughing all the time with Michael, always carrying on and he always took Michael everywhere. And he was like, everyone used to call him his little shadow. Paul was well known around his local area as a bit of a jack the lad. Even Elsie would describe him saying that Paul had his ups, had his downs and that he wasn't perfect. I mean, honestly, who is? But Paul was very much loved by his family. I mean, Paul had his good points. He had his bad points like everyone. Paul wasn't perfect. But he was a very loving person and he was loved very much by this family. Four-year-old Michael, who was finally old enough to understand Christmas, was looking forward to a visit from Santa and he was buzzing with excitement. Throughout the day of the 23rd of December 1993, the family had been getting into the festive spirit. Pamela would recall Paul and Michael singing jingle bells all day long, right up until Paul left for work. He had been working as a delivery driver for the Golden Flower Chinese restaurant in Shotley Bridge, which was just around the corner from them, for about two years. This time of year was always super busy. People were cozying up on the couch on the cold nights and treating themselves after long days of shopping or decorating or visiting family. So Paul knew that he would be in for a very busy shift, but he didn't mind. He wanted to make this Christmas magical for his two kids. At around 9.20pm, the phone inside of the Golden Flower Chinese began to ring with yet another order. This customer ordered a meal of barbecue spare ribs and chow mein for delivery to the address Blue House Farm. The caller was either very vague or deliberately confusing with their directions, so the woman who took the order told the customer that she would have the delivery driver call them back and clarify the directions. I have posted a picture on the podcast Instagram at True Crime Caitlin Pod, which shows where the Golden Flower Chinese is and where Blue House Farm is. If you're not looking at the picture, 
they are relatively close not even five minutes away from each other but the blue house farm address is isolated and it's off the road you would probably drive straight past it unless you knew it was there and there are other turnoffs before the turnoff for blue house farm so it's understandable that if you did live here you might need to give someone directions so that they could actually find it 20-ish minutes later, Paul returned from making another delivery when he was asked to ring back the customer who placed that order at a Blue House farm. So he did, and the customer answered, gave very clear directions, and just before 10pm, their food was ready and Paul was out the door on his way to deliver it. When he arrived, he turned onto the road and drove through an open gate up the lane towards Blue House farm. When he knocked on the door and tried to hand the food over, Paul was met with a very perplexed look. An elderly woman named Joan Grossick had been sat with her husband when Paul knocked and his arrival with Chinese food was unexpected and she told him so, telling them that they didn't order any food and she turned him away. I can imagine Paul felt equally confused. He had called the customer back and taken the directions, which he followed perfectly, so could it have just been some kids trying to have a laugh and making a prank call? Or had he got the directions wrong? Either way, Paul climbed back into his white cream Peugeot car and began driving down the lane, Joan watching him set off from her window. Back at the Golden Flower Chinese, the orders were beginning to pile and pile up and the restaurant owner, Tony, told the woman working on the phone to stop taking new orders until Paul had returned. They waited and waited and waited until it had been about an hour and a half, which for a delivery, which was only five minutes away, they knew that Paul should have been back long ago. They thought maybe he'd popped home for something and got distracted, or maybe he even just decided he was done for the night and gone home. So they rang Pamela and asked her, had Paul came home? Was he there with her? But he wasn't. He hadn't been home since he had left for work hours before. Tony explained that he had gone out for a delivery and hadn't came back. Pamela then rang Elsie and Hugh and Elsie would recall immediately being concerned that Paul hadn't returned. But it was when I got the phone call from Pamela that Paul hadn't returned. I was very concerned because I knew it wasn't Paul not to return from a delivery. My husband and David went to the Chinese to talk to Tony. They asked him to take them straight where the car was. Hugh and David, Paul's dad and brother, made their way over to the Golden Flower Chinese, met Tony and together they all piled into a car and made their way up to Blue House Farm, having no idea what awaited them. As the Logan family were coming to the realisation that Paul hadn't returned back from his delivery, the occupants of Blue House Farm were also becoming concerned. Joan had peered out from the window and saw the white cream Peugeot that Paul had arrived in was still on their property sat at the end of the road. For a short while, she ignored it. However, when time was taken on and the car wasn't budging, she became even more concerned, so she picked up the phone and dialed 999. It is slightly unclear who arrived at the scene first, whether it was the police or it was Hugh, David and Tony. When Paul's car was found, it was sat at the bottom of the road, just before the gate that led onto Blue House Farm, just as Joan reported. Its headlights were still on, both of the doors to the car were left wide open and there was no sign of Paul. 
Police promptly began an investigation, searching the nearby dark, snow-covered farmland for any sign of Paul or any sign of what could have happened to him. At around 2.15am, now on Christmas Eve, an officer would find the body of Paul Logan, approximately 50 yards away from his car and covered in blood. It was clear that Paul had been the victim of a barbarous, callous, cold-blooded murder. He had been beaten over the head with an unknown blunt instrument so severely that his skull had been crushed, causing him to have brain damage. He sustained wounds all across his body, 30 in total. It was found that he had self-defence wounds where he had tried to fend off his attacker and there was evidence that Paul managed to escape from the brutal beating momentarily and had tried running away when the attacker caught up to him and ultimately killed him. I tried to find exactly what they found that proved this, but I couldn't find any specifics. My guess would be either they found footprints or drag marks in the snow, or maybe there was a trail of blood that they had found. Police launched a murder investigation and scoured the extensive fields that surrounded Blue House Farm, searching for a murder weapon which they would never end up finding. Investigators began trying to trace the caller who had placed the order to the Golden Flower Chinese and they quickly discovered that the call wasn't made from a house phone or a very rare mobile phone but it came from a phone box around 600 yards away from the Chinese on Ben Fieldside Road. This was interesting to investigators because they knew that the caller had waited about 20 minutes after they had first rang up the Chinese for Paul to ring them back to clarify the directions. So surely someone had to have noticed someone in or lingering near the phone box within this 20 to 30 minute time frame and they were right. The witnesses were a couple who were out walking together down this road and the woman had noticed a man stood inside of the phone box looking very normal, talking down the phone, as you do when you're inside of a phone box. But as she and her partner got closer, he kind of turned to conceal himself and stopped talking. This was what stood out to her and made an otherwise very normal thing stick out to her. Why was he trying to not make himself noticeable? What was he saying that he didn't want to be heard? This is Detective David Wilson relaying the description that was given of the man. A lot of people saw the man in the phone box that night. What did he look like? He's white, um, about six foot tall, 30 years of age, a muscular build, wearing a black leather jacket, um, scruffy appearance, color length, dark hair, he's sitting at the front. Along with this mysterious man inside of the phone box, there was a red Ford Fiesta XR2 parked up alongside it with another man sat inside. This is that man's description. And the driver of the Fiesta vehicle was a similar build, again wearing a black leather jacket and a scruffy appearance. Other witnesses would tell police that they saw Paul's white cream Peugeot car parked at the gates of Blue House Farm and that around 150 yards away they saw another car. This was a red or orange Astra. Could they have been mistaken and was it actually a Ford Fiesta that they had seen or was this other similar coloured car seen near Paul's purely a coincidence? A team of 30 detectives worked the case and over 1,200 statements were taken. From these statements, investigators were able to uncover some interesting things that had happened to Paul in the months leading up to his murder. 
For instance, Paul's car had been vandalised several times, meaning that he was unable to drive it and work and as a delivery driver, this obviously wasn't good. If he can't drive, he can't work. In September 1993, Paul's car had yet again been vandalised and someone had carved the words, quote, no legs onto his roof. Now, I'm also from Durham, the area where this case happened, and I have never, ever heard of this phrase before. I did try and look to see what it meant, but the only answers that I could get were from Reddit, so I don't know how accurate they are. So, according to Redditors, no legs refers to a threat being made to a grass. A grass meaning a snitch. So potentially someone thought that Paul had grassed on them and them carving no legs into his car was them essentially threatening Paul, saying that they were going to break his legs. Another thought that no legs is used to describe something that cannot win, so could this have meant that Paul was in a feud with someone and this is then telling them that he wasn't going to win the feud? I have no idea, but that's what I found on Reddit and I think finding the context of this could have really been important to the case. Through speaking to several locals, investigators would discover that some people weren't huge fans of Paul, that many people held grudges against him for whatever reason. Some witnesses would describe him as a dugger and diver, yet another expression that I'm not familiar with, but according to the Cambridge Dictionary quote, Ducking and diving is the action of cleverly doing everything you can in order to succeed or to avoid a situation, even when this may not be completely acceptable or honest. So take that as you will. Even after all of the questioning and investigating, detectives still could not come up with a motive. So some people didn't agree with Paul's actions or how he handles things. Some were in a huff with him, but none of this seemed enough motive to commit a merciless murder against a young father hours before Christmas. The investigation began slowing down. Officers had interviewed everyone that they could, they followed each and every lead, they examined each piece of evidence, but they were still no further forward to finding Paul's killer. Detectives did come to a sort of conclusion though. They were confident that this was a premeditated, well-organised murder, that there was more than one perpetrator and that the food delivery to Blue House Farm was a hoax in order to lure Paul to the isolated road. They had opened the gate before his arrival to allow Paul to drive through and up the road, then as he's knocking on the door trying to deliver the food, the perpetrators closed the gate and laid in wait. When Paul drove back down the road, he would have had to have gotten out of his car to reopen the gate, and that's when he was ambushed. It's theorised that the killer, or killers, must have been local in order for them to know of Blue House Farm. As I said earlier, it's somewhere that you would easily drive past unless you knew it was there, and it's believed that they chose Blue House Farm because of its isolation and low foot traffic. Even the gate where the ambush took place is a bit of a distance from the actual house, so even the occupants weren't likely to hear or even really see much. But still, all of this didn't provide any clues towards a motive. Robbery was sort of ruled out as Paul was a delivery driver, so he had money on him, but this money wasn't stolen. 
1997, four years after Paul's murder, police finally made their first arrests, arresting 10 men on suspicion of murder. I couldn't find a single thing that indicated why these men got arrested, what evidence they had uncovered that led them to these men, or anything like that. However, they would all be released without charge. One of the men who was arrested was 34-year-old Keith Suddick, who would have been 30 at the time of Paul's murder and had been on police's radar. Keith retaliated to Hugh's belief that he murdered his son not by trying to be reasonable or compassionate or explaining how it couldn't have been him. Instead, Keith committed a bomb attack on Hugh's van. He alleged that the accusations from the Logan family were embarrassing for him and that the allegations caused his own business to fail and in anger, he sought out revenge on Hugh. Keith would spend 12 months in prison after pleading guilty to possession of explosives. He died in 2012, days before his 50th birthday, after suffering a heart spasm due to excessive use of cocaine, never admitting if he was involved with Paul's murder. I have posted a picture of Keith over on the Instagram alongside a composite sketch. For me, I'm not sure on the resemblance because Keith is pictured at an angle kind of more to the side, whereas the composite sketch is straight on. Keith's hair isn't as receding as the composite, his eyes and lips are both a bit bigger, but they're both over there so you can go have a look and compare for yourself and let me know what you think. During a Crime Watch episode, Elsie talks about the effect that her son's murder has had on the entire family. She talks about how sometimes she thinks she's going mad. Whatever they've done to Paul and they've done to the whole family, I can't describe to anybody how I feel. It has just ripped my family into pieces. You see people, but what's inside, you can't describe. I've known sorrow, I've known pain, but this is worse. It's a lot worse. You can't describe what goes in your head. There's times you think you're going mad. Things that go in your head because you need to know why. Why such a thing has happened. She talks about the impact Paul's murder has had on his son Michael and how he cries for his dad. A terrible impact, especially on his dad. Terrible impact. When all the family are together, he realised his dad's not there and he cried, family cried. And he just, every day he talks about his dad. She explains that Christmas is just too hard, that it doesn't exist for her anymore. Christmas, as far as I'm concerned, never exists anymore. I try and get through Christmas as I would any other day of the year. It's not... You try and make it happy as you can for children. We, you can only go so much, you know what I mean? Uh, I can't explain it because I can't, I can't celebrate Christmas. I can't. Over the years, the Logan family have put up a reward for information leading to an arrest and conviction to try and help find Paul's killer. With the help of Crime Stoppers, that reward now sits at £50,000. In a 2017 interview, Paul's sister made a plea for information. Please come forward um, with any information that you may have, whether it be little, small. It could seem like nothing to you, but it could, it could make a big difference to the inquiry, just so that we can have a bit of closure as a family. And how has it been not knowing 
who killed Paul or why they did it? It's been extremely difficult. Um, it makes you question who your friends are, um, you know, what are people talking about, sort of who knows, who doesn't, and basically why, why aren't people coming forward? She would talk about how difficult it is living with the fact that her brother was murdered and that they have no answers, not even a reason why he was murdered. How she has to remember the good times to get through each day and how police are still actively working the case that Paul's case isn't sat at the back of a drawer in an office and forgotten about. It is difficult, it is, because it, as I say, even though you know people say it, time's a great healer, it's not. It never leaves you. You just... You go through your day differently. Um, you've, you've got to keep remembering the good times, you know, to do that, to keep getting through the days. Um, so, no, it is difficult, but, you know, you've just got to keep trying. It is hard, and, and to think we're now, you know, we're heading towards 25 years, but the, you know, the only thing we can sort of go with is that, you know, things change all of the time. Forensics are changing. Things that maybe wouldn't be looked at years ago will be looked at now. and. People are working on it all of the time. That's a good thing. I think people think it's sitting in the background, just forgot about. And the good thing for us is we know it isn't, and it's getting worked on all of the time. And things, you know, things are progressing. So, you know, we live with that. It, that it doesn't make any sense to us because we've had no answers. We've never had any answers to either who or what reasons behind it. So that that makes it extremely difficult because, you know, you could understand if there was a reason, you could think right, that's why it happened. But we don't have that. We've never had any answers to that. In a 2018 interview, Paul's brother said, quote, We still haven't moved on. We live with this every day. Someone out there knows what happened to Paul and we are hoping that this reward will be enough to encourage anyone who remembers even the smallest detail to come forward and help us get the closure our family deserves and to secure justice. Natalie, who was only nine months old when her daughter and father was murdered, said, quote, my dad was the same age I am now when he was killed and he had his whole life ahead of him. Someone out there knows why my dad was taken from us. They know I've gone through life without him and they know what my family have been through. I truly hope we can find the answers we need so my family and I can have our closure. It has now been 30 years since 25-year-old Paul Logan was lured, ambushed and horrifically murdered and his killers have still not been brought to justice. Hugh and Elsie have both sadly passed before seeing justice being brought for their son. Paul would have been 55 and a grandfather now, both of his children starting their own families. The Logans are still hoping that one day they will get their answers. If you have any information regarding the December 1993 murder of Paul Logan in Shotley Bridge, County Durham, you can contact Northumbria Police's Homicide and Major Inquiry Team on 101 or you can contact Crime Stoppers anonymously on 0800 555 111 or through their website. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode if you enjoyed it please make sure to follow the podcast and to leave me a nice review i would appreciate that so much you can follow the podcast over on instagram at true crime caitlin where i'll be posting images relating to all the cases and for any updates make sure you tune in again next week for a brand new episode